uh, as we looked at it last week, um, Jesus' brothers had invited and told him to go down to the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and to basically present himself and to show the world what he could do. And Jesus said, now is not my time. He went down quietly and in private. So we're going to see what happens next. Let us read from God's Word, chapter 7. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Father, this morning I feel uh, in many ways woefully insufficient, as though this is not done working through my brain. And so I ask that you'd have mercy on these people as they listen. May your spirit be at work, for it is not by my eloquence, it's not by my power, but by the spirit. Open their ears, open their hearts. Work in a way that uh, we cannot comprehend, that we all might understand this text, that we all might grasp, grapple with its implications. Help us to humbly receive from you your truth from the Word of God incarnate, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was May 5th, 1991. And when I say that, you probably don't know where you were, and if you would just ask me that date, I wouldn't remember where I was. But where I was, in fact, was sitting in front of my TV. Because it was game five of the Celtics versus the Pacers. Okay? Game four didn't go so well. The Celtics had a horrible fourth quarter. Larry Bird was a wreck physically. Already he was scheduled to have back surgery once the season was over for the Celtics. And with about four minutes to go, Bird was having a pretty decent game. When there was a loose ball, he lunged for it. And in the process, his face went smack against the court, and he didn't get up. All the play continued. All of the Celtics fans 
their hearts sank because, of course, it's Larry Legend, Larry Bird. Take him to the back. End of ha- and halftime is over. All the Celtics come out back onto the court, but one. The captain, Larry Bird. It wasn't until the third quarter was almost done, with the Celtics barely clinging to a lead, when suddenly the garden erupted because the captain was back. Larry Bird came onto the court and continued and played the rest of the game, even falling on his face once or twice and being pushed down, but ended the game, a Celtics victory, with 32 points, nine rebounds, seven assists, and a steal, contributing to a Celtics victory. Asked afterward, he said, I can't leave those guys out there all by themselves. A very dramatic entrance. Because all of the people in the crowd and the, na- and the nationwide television audience had all assumed when he did not emerge after halftime that he was done. That the injury he received was so, se- so severe that he could not return for the rest of the game. Dramatic entrance. Jesus is about to have a dramatic entrance. Not because he was hurt, but because he concealed himself. And now he's ready, in a sense, to burst on the scene at the Feast of Tabernacles. It is going to be very dramatic because it is going to spawn lots of controversy, not winning a game, something far more important than that. He's going to speak the truth, and people are going to respond to the truth, and it may not be what we wish it would be. We will see the big idea this morning is that Jesus is righteous in all his dealings, and conversely, we are not. Let's start with an idea, and as I mentioned in my prayer, there's an element to this where it's not done baking, not done cooking, so forgive me in my three points as I try to still kind of put this together. But it starts with an imperative, commit to understand Jesus' righteous teaching, and I think all these elements are going to be there, all these ingredients will be there, and we're really focusing on verses 14 through 18 as we ponder this. But first off, let's remember, it's in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has come in privately, he didn't come in with the crowds, he kind of snuck in to Jerusalem for this event. Remember, he comes not to do the will of his brothers, but to do the will of his Father. He comes as an obedient Jew to fulfill righteousness for sinners like us, okay? Because it was a required feast. He had to be there, okay? So his brothers didn't ask him that question because they really weren't concerned about him. Now, when Jesus goes to the temple, he begins to teach. Now, this is not strange. There were many rabbis who would do that in the midst of uh, feasts like this. They would go to the temple and disciples would be drawn to them and they would teach and instruct. But what is, what is unusual is the response to Jesus. Now, what's also unusual is John doesn't tell us what he taught about. It's apparently not important for us to know what he taught about. Now, the direction in which this is going to go leads many people to think that this actually belongs in chapter 5, I don't think it does, okay? I think it belongs right here in chapter 7. But it brings us back to the events of chapter 5, even though it was been six months since then. The conflict with the Jewish leaders is not done, and if we forget the healing of the paralytic, we don't really understand what's going on here, 
Okay? But their response, as I said, was unusual, for they said, how is it that this man has learning? Or if you're down south, he'd be learned. Okay? He'd be learning stuff. Jesus was like most Jewish men. Okay? It's not the fact that he could read or that he could write. The, the focus here is on his teaching, how he taught. He taught with great understanding. And now they didn't, the people there didn't understand how he had such great understanding because he had never gone to rabbinical school. Because he had never been associated with another rabbi that traveled around, he sort of just emerges upon the scene when he's 30 years old and begins to teach with such wisdom that it surprises them. They marvel. They don't understand. He's not preaching like many of the scribes would do, who would go through their lists of authorities to back up what they're saying. You know, occasionally I throw some quotes of, Calvin or someone else in there to help you. I don't make this stuff up on my own. That's what the scribes would do, but lots and lots of them. Okay? They would appeal to someone else's authority, and Jesus is not in his teaching and preaching in public appealing to other authorities. He's appealing to the scriptures, and he's helping people to understand the meaning of the scriptures. And so this is part of what they are marveling at. It's similar, in a sense, to Spurgeon. I brought up uh, Charles Spurgeon before, and one of the positive things about Charles Spurgeon was, well, I guess it's positive, he never went to seminary. He never received any advanced education. But he was a man who deeply understood the faith and was able to clearly articulate the faith to people, although he'd never been trained. He'd never had the grammar stuff. And so, it happens. In fact, they're wondering, I mean, there really is a sense of irony in this text, because they're kind of wondering, how could this backwoods guy from Galilee sound so smart and wise? Okay? It didn't stop with Jesus. We see in Acts 4, the same thing happens with the disciples. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, same word as marveled, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Okay? So Jesus is speaking profoundly, deeply. The people are responding to this, okay? And they're wondering how this is. And he says to them shocking words in some sense, my teaching is not mine. Jesus does not claim responsibility for that which he teaches. And the the Greek word there is often also used not just for teaching but for doctrine. There's actually an extra-biblical book called the Didache, which is the same word that's there. And some of you have read it, most likely Christopher Hall has read it. I'm sure you've read that, right? Okay, there you go. (laughs) I'm surprised. Um, But... It's not just teaching, but doctrine that he's, that he's expounding. Okay, This doctrine is not mine. I did not come up with it. It is not novel to me. And this is really contrary in many ways to a lot of teachers. Because you know what? 
and, and this is one of those confessions, we like to be original sometimes. That's how you make a name for yourself. Originality. As a theologian, you've got to come up with something that no one else has seen or taught before, some new formulation, so that you have a, build a reputation. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm not here to build a reputation. This is not original to me. I have received this from someone else. And he sets himself in contrast, okay, because he's saying, essentially, I'm not seeking my own glory, but there's something about those who do. Those who seek their own glory, in this instance, through their teaching, are driven by pride and therefore are unrighteous in how they teach, how they go about their teaching. Because they have improper motives, Jesus is saying, that they often don't teach the truth, but they will teach what will gain them an audience, what will gain them a reputation, what will gain them. And we see this struggle in the human soul all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 11, one of the things that is said about the people of Babel before they build the tower that reaches into the sky, okay, is they wanted to make a name for themselves. They were seeking their own glory. But they stand in contrast with Genesis 12 when God finds Abraham. Okay, Not when Abraham found God, when God found Abraham. And one of the promises he says is, to Abraham is, I will make your name great. I will give you a great reputation. I will make you renowned. Abraham wasn't seeking his own reputation and greatness of name, but God gives him one by grace. Okay, Those who seek it end up getting pushed down. God scattered the people of Babel. He confused their languages. He opposed them. An illustration of one of my favorite passages, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, that's part of what we see going on here. As Jesus contrasts himself with the others, teachers who are around, he wants them to know that he is seeking the Father's glory. And that because he is seeking the Father's glory, he is seeking God's glory, he speaks truthfully and with a pure motive. He is speaking honestly. He is speaking, as we would say, inerrantly, without mistake. Okay? And with a pure motive. There will be no secret tapes about what Jesus really believes. There'll be no suddenly discovered missing emails or text messages about what Jesus really thinks, believes, or did. Okay? He's upfront. He's honest. He has integrity. And his teaching is not his own. It is his who sent me. Again, he credits the Father. Again, he recognizes that he is submitting to the Father with regard to his teaching, with regard to his doctrine. He is not his own man, but as the Son, he lives in submission to the Father. 
Let's pause for a second. Okay? That word submission. That's a tough word for some of us. It makes us think of inferior. Let's go back to the Nicene Creed, which we confessed earlier. He is equal in power and glory. He's no less God than the Father is. His submission has nothing to do with equality or inequality. He is perfectly equal with the Father. And yet, for our salvation, he submitted himself perfectly to the Father. So don't let submission get this idea in your brain of one is inferior to another. It just has to do with role and place for time. Okay? All right. Back off that little thing there. All right. He submits to the Father. He, again, brings up this idea of mission. He was sent. He's not there by accident, but he was sent by the Father who instructed him to teach these things. There is a process that we see in Scripture with regard to Jesus himself, even. Luke 2. We talked about Luke 2 last week with regard to how most people went to the festivals, the the large extended families and sometimes even whole villages going down together. Okay. Well, when Jesus, when they found Jesus at the temple, what he was doing was he was engaging the, the scribes and the Pharisees that were at the temple and was astounding them with the knowledge and insight that he had. Okay. We see that in Luke 2. Um, I've got that here. But also on the heels of that, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. That's important for us to recognize. Jesus, one person, two natures. His humanity did not have the characteristics of his divinity. As R.C. Sproul notes, we have to understand that his divine nature has all of the attributes of deity, while the human nature has all of the limitations of humanity. And that means Jesus had to learn. Kids, you're not alone. Jesus had to learn his math. Jesus had to learn how to write. Jesus had to learn how to read. Jesus had to learn the scriptures, not with a matrix-like digital download into his brain so it's instantaneously there. He went through the process of maturity like each and every one of us has to go through the process of maturity. Now, I don't want to go too far and say he failed like we failed in math. I don't know. Okay? I don't know. But you know what? He had to memorize all these things. He had to know all these things. He grew in wisdom. Okay? He went through the trials. He, had to, he didn't automatically know the Scriptures. He had to read the Scriptures. And then the Father would instruct him through the Scriptures. Not just his earthly father, Joseph, but the heavenly Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would instruct him. Just like kids have to learn and adults have to learn. Maturity did not come with a pill or on the first shot. Now, Does Jesus expect them to take all of this at face value? No. 
Notice what he says. We've got rambunctious children this morning. It's been through the whole service, including my children, so don't worry. Um, Jesus says something that's, a, that's astounding. Okay? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will see the truth about my teaching. He will understand. He's talking about a prior commitment when you come to the teaching of Jesus, when you come to the Scriptures. And that prior commitment is, I may not understand this, but as you teach me, my desire is to obey you. That's what he's talking about. If your desire is to obey God, Jesus says, you will understand where the teach, my teaching comes from. God himself. And so this is not you know, kind of an appeal to skeptics so much as people who want to know the truth have a, and therefore obey the truth. Jesus does not here promise that anyone who wants to will be enlightened as to the nature of the truth. There should be a pre-commitment on our part, so to speak, to, to know it so that we can obey God. Psalm 40, for instance, verse 8, we see this reflected. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. The psalmist isn't just talking about, I want to know abstract knowledge. I want to obey you. Teach me. And so we start with a commitment to do God's will, and this is really that, that idea of faith-seeking understanding that takes place. As many of you know, um, when I, I, was, I grew up Catholic, I was converted, I ended up in a Baptist church, and went to a, a seminary that taught infant baptism and struggled, okay, I left seminary still being a, you know, holding to a believer's baptism. And it wasn't until a couple years later where I kind of like was like, you know, whatever the truth is, I want to know it. On this issue, I think I know the truth, but maybe I don't. But I want to know it, and it will shape the rest of my life. And it was then after that that kind of the light bulbs went on for these things that, you know, all these books I've been reading before and it didn't matter, didn't make, any, didn't make a difference. I just say this, okay, obviously I believe infant baptism is true, but not all of you agree with me. But there was that commitment to obey regardless of which direction it goes in. I will follow you, O Lord, no matter where you lead me. Okay, that's where I want to hit Jesus, the righteous teacher, was never wrong in that which he taught. Let's move on to the second part of this. And I'll, I'll encourage you now. The third part is short. Okay. Jesus exposes our inconsistencies. This is the not-so-pleasant part of the sermon in some ways. Jesus now uh, is going to shift his attention away from himself and onto them and their inner conflicts and their problems. You see, again, we've got to keep in mind 
the healing of the prophetic, uh, the, the paralytic man, okay, or this makes no sense. Now, he slips this, this, this idea. You have the law, but you don't obey it. They've received the law from Moses, and as Paul mentions in Romans, this was often a, a source of boasting for them. We have the law, and you Gentiles don't. God loves us more than he loves you. Okay? And where Jesus goes with this, and where Paul also goes with it in Romans chapter 2, is you may have the law, but you don't obey the law. The particular law that he has in mind is that which we find in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, because part of what is going on is that many in Jerusalem are seeking to kill him. That is the specific law that these people are breaking when he says that none of you keeps the law. That's what he has in mind. He could have expanded that in many other ways, but he's focusing on this one thing in this particular circumstance. You're not qualified in as many ways to judge my teaching because you aren't seeking to obey God. Now, Many of these people, because it's a feast, a required mandatory feast for the men of Israel, many of these men were not from Jerusalem, and they did not know that many of the leadership were, in fact, trying to kill Jesus. If we go down to verse 25 for a second, which we'll handle next week, but still. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Okay, So the people of Jerusalem understood they're trying to kill Jesus. The people from outside of Jerusalem may not have known this, and most of them are kind of, hey, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Who's trying to kill you? You have a demon. Or, you're crazy. You're nuts. You're deceived. There's something going on here. There's a problem with you. They now view Jesus as crazy and clueless because they are out of touch with recent history. But how does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, no, you're the guys with the demon. <laughs> okay. First Peter 2 is important because Peter saw this. And it's not just about the crucifixion, it's about all of Jesus' ministry. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly, the Father, as it says elsewhere in First Peter. He continued to entrust himself into the hands of his faithful creator. Well, not creator, but our faithful creator, not his, because he's uncreated. But Jesus did not slander them, did not attack them, but he did speak the truth to them, painful truth to them. He goes deeper into this, and he explains this. Now remember, from that event in John 5, the leaders of Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus because he supposedly broke the Sabbath and blasphemed him by saying that he was equal with the Father. Okay. That's why they want to kill him. Okay? So Jesus brings up the idea, the reality of circumcision. This is an example that he's going to give them. Circumcision was given to Abraham and the patriarchs. It was reported to the Jews by Moses. 
And there was in Leviticus 32 another um, command with regard to circumcision that reflects what we see in Genesis 17. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Which brings them to a conflict, the question. What if a child is born on the Sabbath day? That poor woman, she worked on the Sabbath. They don't say that. Okay. But that'd work. Okay. The eighth day would be the next Sabbath. And that's the day the child is supposed to, was supposed to be circumcised, if it was a boy. Okay. That was a regular practice to circumcise on the Sabbath. And no Jew in that day would have ever have thought that you're breaking the Sabbath. They understood that there were certain things that needed to take place on the Sabbath, and there were certain things that could take place on the Sabbath. So the law that seems to be in conflict, they understood was not necessarily in conflict, but they acted on the basis of kind of hierarchies. That the works of necessity and works of mercy, in other words, the living of your faith, didn't stop on the Sabbath day. The living of your faith continued on the Sabbath day. The priests were not violating the Sabbath by doing that which God ordained and called them to do on the Sabbath. Okay? So, when they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, they're forgetting the reality of works of necessity, they're forgetting the reality of works of mercy, they're forgetting how to rightly understand, interpret, and apply the Scriptures. Okay? Both circumcision and the Sabbath were to point people to the restoration, to the wholeness that God had promised his people. And here is part of what Jesus says is shocking. I have made a man whole, which is what circumcision and Sabbath point to, and you're trying to kill me? You're angry with me? I've done that which these things point to? Don't you understand how inconsistent you are with what you say you believe? The sad truth is is that we're all prone to inconsistencies. Last night uh, on Facebook, one of my high school friends had posted something from Blue State Nation or whatever, and it was interesting because I never kind of, he doesn't really do political stuff. Okay, so it was, why is it, oh, when God says that he created the world in six days, you believe him. But when God says to feed the poor, oh. And so, yeah, some of us have an inconsistency with regard to that. Maybe some conservative Christians forget that uh, part of living our faith includes taking care of the poor. But I reminded him that um, actually many do and draw on my experience, okay? But the world looks at us and sees inconsistencies. And there is a point of validity in that. The gay marriage debate. What inconsistency is brought up? Well, you guys, Jesus, God says he hates divorce, but you, know, you guys get divorced left and right, supposedly. 
And there are biblical grounds for divorce, and we understand divorce happens, and we want to show mercy towards people. But there's a, there can be an inconsistency at times. And it's not just that. Lots of Christians are gluttons. Lots of Christians are lots of things. Just like Jesus talking to the Jews, we don't fully obey God. The question is, what do we do with that? Okay? What do we do with the fact that our actions are at times inconsistent with what we say we believe and who we say we believe in? Okay? How we should respond? Repentance. Saying the same thing. Yes, God, I have sinned in these particular areas and I need forgiveness. Saying basically to, to Jesus, the perfect teacher, the righteous teacher, you're right, I'm wrong. I need your forgiveness. I need your help. Okay? That's one way. And that's what should happen. But what happens here and what often happens is anger, self-righteousness. Remember, the law firm of Cavallaro, Cavallaro, and Cavallaro rises up. How dare you? How dare you say that I commit X, Y, or Z sin? How dare you accuse me of being a liar or a glutton or a thief or something? It responds with anger when we are exposed. And when you're angry, when someone exposes your heart, catch that red flag. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. And recognizing that your desire is not to walk with God at that moment. Your desire is to protect your reputation. Jesus' righteous teaching exposes our unrighteousness and calls us to repentance. Our third thing is that Jesus helps us to make righteous judgments. This is really the last sentence that we have here, last verse that we've got. And when we think of judging, what we should think of is applying the truth to particular circumstances with regard to what is right and what is wrong. Okay? So when I talk about that, that's so you know what I'm thinking. Rushing to judgment is one of the inconsistencies that Jesus exposes in this text. Now, he calls it making a surface judgment. Okay? It's the same thing. You're rushing. You're you're making determinations without getting all of the facts, without understanding the context, without perhaps understanding the scriptures. Okay, that's what these people were doing who were, sent, who were seeking to kill Jesus. And here's the thing. We've all rushed to judgment. I don't think there's any of us who aren't guilty. And we've all been victims of the rush to judgment. One quick story. Back in my former life, when I worked for Xerox, I had to deliver mail. Doesn't that sound an exciting job? But I got to ride these little three-wheel buggies throughout the building. That was kind of cool. Okay? So, 
I worked with this one guy, and we had decided, you know, that day I was going to do the mail runs. And so uh, one of the buggies was not working properly. So we loaded it all up into, into one of the buggies, and uh, he did most of that while I was working on some other stuff. And so I didn't even get a quarter of the way through my run, and the battery's dead. And now he and I didn't have the best of relationships. And I spent most of the rest of my task, I'm going to kill that guy. I know he did this on purpose. And I just, I was just feeding my sense of being hurt, my sense of being failed by the guy who's supposed to have my back. And I just, I was ready to just lay into him when I got there. And then a marvelous thing happened called grace. I got into the elevator and I was going down to where our office was and it, and it suddenly dawned on me. Maybe he just made a mistake. And so instead of laying into him, I asked him a question. And so I didn't add to the tenuousness of our relationship in that moment, like I had planned on for the last 10, 15 minutes. Okay? We rush to judgment, we make assumptions. We put people in the least favorable light at times. Now, remember, Jesus talked about, in terms of his teaching, that he was righteous. He's also, as we saw earlier in John, he's also the judge, and he also, with regard to discharging those duties, he is righteous. And so Jesus, in his dealings with us as teacher and his dealings with us as judge, makes righteous teaching Righteous judgment. He gets it right all the time. He's never wrong about us. Whether he's teaching us or speaking about our inconsistencies. In fact, he is discharging his duties just as it was foretold in Isaiah 11, which we already read from. But we see, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so as the Messiah, Jesus fulfills this responsibility as the righteous, just judge. something we struggle with because of our prejudices we often lead us into this rush for judgment and part of how Jesus helps us is he helps us see our prejudices how we see people in a negative light when we don't have to so Jesus tells them stop judging first command in other words stop judging me like you are now. Because what I'm teaching is not popular with you or that you're not excited about the fact that I healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his mat and go home. Don't make a superficial judgment. Stop doing this. Then he says, make a right judgment. And the way the grammar works is that it's pointing to this specific instance, this one time, make a right judge rightly. Now, of course, Jesus would say that about all of our judgments. They should be done. But he's dealing with a specific thing. Okay? In this matter, you need to judge rightly because right now you're not. 
What does a righteous judgment require? Well, first off, a righteous judgment requires knowing the pertinent facts of the case. This requires time and it requires work. It means you've got to gather evidence. You know, we live in in a microwave world where everyone wants an opinion on current events now. And we don't have the information now. Okay, We still don't know what happened in Ferguson. I don't anyway. And I don't have my head in the sand. Okay, It takes time to figure out what happened. It takes patience and work. When we rush to judgment, we are working on impatience. You don't have to have a decision by the time of the next news cycle, okay? God wants you to make a right decision, an accurate judgment. And sometimes that means looking to him for the patience to wait until you have the information. So, we, we require accurate you know, understanding of the pertinent facts, including not just what happened, but what's around it that happens, okay? Secondly, a righteous requirement requires sufficient knowledge of the Scriptures. That's where sometimes people lack. They might have the facts of the case right, so to speak, but they don't know what to do with the facts of the case. So, because they don't understand the scriptures, we don't, they don't know where the injustice may really lie. It may just be how they feel. And that's always so nebulous, how you feel. Okay? What does scripture say about these things? And again, he helps us to understand scripture. He is the righteous teacher. But we have to go to him. Help me understand how to make sense of this and how I respond in light of this. What should I say about this? What should I do about this? Okay? We have to understand what Scripture says about those facts and circumstances, and then we're ready to make a right judgment. Okay? So, Jesus' dramatic appearance in Jerusalem, opens the door for us to discover that Jesus' teaching is not his own, nor is it corrupted by impure motives. Neither are his judgments, applications of that teaching to the circumstances of life. They're not corrupted by impure motives. Remember, he's seeking God's glory, not his. Jesus can be trusted to teach truthfully and to judge justly. His perfection reveals, unfortunately for us, so to speak, our imperfection and therefore our need for forgiveness and help. He's willing. But are we willing to humble ourselves and learn at the feet of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, help us to hear you were right in all of this. Continue to instruct us as we ponder this, as we pray over this, as we re-examine it by the Scriptures. 
Help us to do the hard work of understanding you, your will. We thank you that there is more than sufficient grace for us to cover our past mistakes. Help us not to live in guilt that has been removed by the work of Jesus. But help us to move forward with a desire to honor and please you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.